Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colbrook. Today I'll be speaking with Matthew Avery Sutton, author of Double Crossed, The Missionaries Who Spied for the United States During the Second World War, published this month by Basic Books. In this book, Sutton excavates the entire histories of spycraft and faith during World War II, during which an influx of missionaries, priests and allies ended up working for the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor of the modern-day CIA. Acutely conscious of how their actions conflicted with their faith, they came to play a crucial role in America's intelligence efforts against the Axis powers. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Great. So I'd like to begin by asking you about your own intellectual background and what brought you to this topic of missionary spies. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a historian of American religion, and I'd started by doing work on evangelicals and Pentecostals and the relationship between um, those groups and politics. And so my first book was on Amy Semple McPherson, who was a revivalist in Los Angeles in the 1920s and 30s. And she was an amazing character, very charismatic, and she essentially appropriated the tools and the tricks of Hollywood to help sell her revivalist religion. And she was also involved in a major scandal, which made the story even more interesting. And then from there, I did a book called American Apocalypse, which looks at the ways in which evangelicals believe that the world is going to end and how that shaped their understanding of global events. And so it began in the late 19th century and then moved through World War I, World War II, the Zionist movement, the early Cold War, and then ultimately Reagan in 9-11. And my goal in that book was to really think about what makes evangelicals culturally, politically, socially different from their mainline counterparts. And so it was in Doing that research that I got interested in missionaries and missionary work, and I discovered that one of the fundamentalist characters who I had looked at, John Birch, had served as a spy during World War II, and, and that piqued my curiosity. And so I decided if, if John Birch had been spying during World War II, perhaps other missionaries were as well. Okay, so uh, from a kind of methodological point of view, you use the uh, technique of collective biography in this book. What made you decide to use that, uh, that framework? Yeah, that's right. When I first pitched the book to um, to various editors, I was thinking about doing a book on religion in the OSS, and OSS is the Office of Strategic Services. That was the precursor to the CIA. And I had an excellent editor at Basic Books, um, Dan Gersel, who read the proposal, deconstructed it, and then put it back together in a way that made it make even more sense. And what he suggested was that rather than write this kind of mammoth tome on religion in the OSS, I should just focus on a few important characters and then use their stories and their lives to tell this story. And, and I found that to be a compelling idea, and I'm, I'm really glad in retrospect that that's the way I went. Definitely keeps the uh, narrative coherence. So um, writing the history of intelligence and spying, as you do here, uh, is obviously very difficult because, as you outline in your introduction, spies, politicians, and military officials often want to hide these activities from posterity. So I was wondering how you got around this and what sources you ended up relying on to do. Sure, yeah. So it was a, a combination of things. Um, one of the things that made this possible was that in 2008, the National Archives declassified or released a ton of World War II material that um, had been classified. And so I had access to that. And that material allowed me to, it, it, well, 
working with it was difficult. It was essentially looking for needles within the haystack, but it allowed me to to identify a few characters who I thought might be intriguing, might be interesting, that seemed to have some connections to organized religion. And then once I did that, I would then go back and see what I could find out about their lives outside of the OSS, outside of the National Archives. And so the characters who I ended up focusing on were all people who had substantial paper trails in other archives, which weren't focused on their OSS operational stuff, but they were focused on their church work or their religious work or their personal lives or their families. And so essentially to, to write the book, it was taking these various pieces of the puzzle and putting them together to create this entire picture of who these people were. Mm, great. So um, as we've mentioned, it's a collective biography. So the four main missionaries you focus on are William Eddy, John Birch, Stephen Penrose, and Stuart Herman. Could you give a brief biographical sketch of each before World War II? Sure. So Eddie is my favorite character. Um, he was about my my age today. I'm in my mid-40s. He was in his mid-40s during World War II. He had served as a Marine in World War One, and then um, became a missionary. Well, actually, I should back up. He was born and raised in Lebanon. His parents were missionaries at the American University in Beirut. So he didn't actually ever visit the United States until he was 16 years old. And at that point, he spoke fluent Arabic, and he knew the Quran inside and out. But he also knew the Bible inside and out because his parents were there to try to convert Muslims to Christianity. So then he went to school um, at Princeton, went and did some graduate work also at Princeton, and then um, enlisted in the Army during World War I, was a Marine and intelligence agent. And then after the war, he decided to be a missionary. So he went over to the American University in Beirut and taught there for many years. Um, doing what he could to to try to convert Muslims to Christianity. Yeah. And then when World War II um, was developing, when before the U.S. got involved, he recognized that, that the U.S. was going to inevitably be there. And so he decided to return to service as a naval intelligence officer. And then he was soon recruited by the OSS because they, they realized that they needed Arabic-speaking people who understood Arab cultures and uh, Arab life and, and could negotiate with Arab leaders. And, and he was their guy. So that was... That was Eddie. The other thing I found compelling about him is he had four children and seems to have really loved and cared for his wife. And so his letters are really rich in terms of the the ways in which he expresses expresses who he is, but what he thinks about them. And, and his older sons were both um, fighting in World War II with the Marines, and he was so worried about them. And, and you can just sense the kind of tensions, the real issues that this person as a father and a husband was dealing with. Mm-hmm. So that's Eddie. Um, Birch was the youngest of the characters. He was in his early 20s. He was a fundamentalist Christian. He believed the world was going to end at any moment. He came out of my, the apocalyptic tradition that I focus on in my other book, my previous book. But he went to China in 1940 as a missionary. And of course, China was already at war with Japan. And he was working near the front lines. Many missionaries had left China because it wasn't safe. And so his goal was to do what he could to protect the Christian church and to even expand the Christian church. Um, and so he um, ended up getting recruited by the U.S. Army and decided to serve there and then eventually became an intelligence agent. Um, Stuart Herman had the most fascinating backstory in that he did graduate work um, in seminary in the United States in Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. And then he decided that he wanted to do some postgraduate work in Europe. So he went to Strasbourg in 1934. And then in 1935, he took a position as the pastor of the American church in Berlin. This was a church that served mostly businessmen, expatriates, um, and other English-speaking folks, mostly Americans, but also some Brits and some others. And so he was there all the way until after Pearl Harbor when he was interned with the, the few Americans who were left in Berlin at that point. 
Mm-hmm. And then the final character was Stephen Penrose. He was a missionary executive. And so he had been very involved in missions work himself. He had also worked in the Middle East. But in the late 1930s and early 40s, at, on the verge of the war, he was working in New York as the leader of the Near East College Association. And so he oversaw all these American missionary schools, mostly in the Middle East and in Turkey. Great. So could you just give us a brief outline of how each came to spy for the U.S. during World War II? Yeah, it was different for every one of them. So for Eddie, um, it was the the easiest and the most natural because he was already working for naval intelligence. So when Roosevelt um, created the OSS in the summer of 1941, and then William Donovan, who was the director of the OSS, when he began recruiting agents, he, he realized right away that Eddie was someone who would be valuable. So they brought Eddie back to Washington, D.C. Um, in, I think it was November of 1941, just before Pearl Harbor, and then gave him new orders. And then they returned him to North Africa to Tangier. And he was the OSS's man on the ground preparing the way for Operation Torch. Uh, for Birch, it was really a, a coincidence that once the U.S. entered the war, he was cut off from his missionary agency, which meant he was cut off from money. He needed support. And so he was struggling to try to figure out what to do, but he didn't want to leave China. He felt really committed to the Chinese people. And one afternoon when he was working his way down a local river, um, evangelizing, preaching, he ran into a Chinese military officer at a restaurant. They began talking. Birch thought that the officer was just trying to practice his English, but he said there were some Americans down in a boat here. And Birch thought the the guy just couldn't be correct, that there, there weren't any Americans in this area. But the guy was insistent, so Birch went down with him to this to this boat and found that below the decks were um, a handful of American airmen, including James Doolittle, who had been the leader of the famous Doolittle Raids. They had launched off of an aircraft carrier in a bunch of um, bombers, dropped bombs over Tokyo, and then flew as far as they could until they ran out of fuel and then just bailed out over China. And so they were just trying to make their way through the Japanese lines into the American bases in China. And so Birch ends up helping James Doolittle. And that became his entree into working for the army. And then once the OSS took over intelligence operations in China, that's when he went to work for the OSS. Um, Penrose was also recruited early on because of his work with missionary agencies. He knew Alan Dulles. Um, Alan Dulles would later go on to direct the CIA, but Alan Dulles was one of the founders of the OSS, one of the kind of key folks early on. And Dulles recognized the power of religion and the importance of religion. And so one of the things he wanted to do was recruit religious leaders who could help him recruit missionaries. And so Penrose became his point person to sort of an intermediary between the OSS and the missionary boards to to try to find missionaries they could use as agents. And so that was how he started with the OSS. And then um, Stuart Herman came a little bit later. As I mentioned, he had been interned by the Germans. Um, He came back to the U.S. in 1942. And then he was sort of scrounging around for a job. It wasn't clear what he was going to do. And um, as he was getting more and more desperate for work, he wrote a letter to a friend in army intelligence and just asked if they needed anybody who could help with German translation or anything else. And that piqued his buddy's curiosity, who then forwarded it to Bill Donovan in the OSS. So then they realized that Stuart Herman was an absolute goldmine of information, that the sort of leading anti-Nazi group within Germany was the Confessing Church, this group of radical clergymen who had opposed the Nazi regime. And Stuart Herman knew all of them, knew who they could trust, who they couldn't trust, understood that network. And so Stuart Herman went to work for the OSS as their liaison to the the anti-Nazi German underground. Great. So um, how did they resolve 
kind of inherent conflict, really, between uh, their faith and their role as missionaries and their newfound roles as spies, which kind of necessarily entails deceit and, as you outline, in some cases, violence. Yeah, that was one of the, the things that drew me to their stories, was to think about those things and, and how they worked them out. And they all wrestled with it. And the way I know they wrestled with it is from letters they sent back to their family or things they wrote in their diaries. And one of the... Um, one of the things that was clear is that none of them regretted what they did. They all believed that this was what they had to do, but none of them was proud of what they had done. They all believed that this was a necessary evil. And so they were all pragmatists. And so um, the one who was most articulate about it was William Eddy near the end of his life. He said that um, it's impossible to think of an OSS man or a CIA man as ever being honorable again after they go to work for those agencies, that there's just, there's really no redemption for them. And then he went on to say that they all deserved to burn in hell for the things they had done during World War II. And then he shifted and said, but if I was asked to do it again, would I? Yes. Because for the missionaries like Eddie, and this was true of all of them, if, if Hitler had been victorious in Europe, if the Japanese had been victorious in China, this would have imperiled generations of missionary work. This would have really clamped down on freedom of religion and their ability to make converts. And so... None of them liked the lying, the deceiving, the double dealing that they had to do, but they all believed it was necessary for the greater good and that essentially that God would forgive them for their actions. And the the other interesting thing about that is that not all missionaries were willing to do this. Not all missionaries were willing to make those kinds of choices. The, the folks I focus on, of course, are the ones who did do those kinds of things. But there were a lot of missionaries that the OSS tried to recruit who refused, who they said, we can't lie. There was one even one story I, I uncovered about a, a French priest who was working for the OSS he was captured by the Germans. They asked him, have you talked to the Americans? And he immediately said, yes, I cannot tell a lie. And so he was interned and eventually executed in a concentration camp. So there were those who felt like they couldn't compromise their ethics and their morals. But the folks that I focus on were the ones who were willing to, to make those sacrifices for what they thought were the greatest good. Mm, so linked to uh, that question and that issue of that conflict is what vision did these spies have of America's place in the world? What, and how did that sort of justify uh, their decision to become spies? So they were, um, they fell across the theological spectrum. As I mentioned, Birch was extremely fundamentalist. Eddie was more mainline, more liberal, as was Penrose. Uh, Stuart Herman was a traditionalist Lutheran. He came out of a confessing, confessional church tradition. But all of them at that time were extremely patriotic. Um, they they really saw the United States as a beacon for the rest of the world, as the city on the hill that Americans had long hoped and thought their nation should be. And so they recognized that the United States wasn't perfect and there were different policies and things that they didn't like about the United States or that they thought were not ideal or Christian. But nevertheless, they believed that in the dark days of you know, 1941, 1942, that the best hope for the world was a United States victory. It was an allied victory, but especially a United States victory, that, that that would help ensure the most freedom for the most people at the end of the war. So I think you've touched on this a bit already, um, but I was wondering what their different theological backgrounds, how that contributed to their different approaches to spying. Yeah, so that, that also influenced what they saw is the long-term significance of their work. So for John Birch, he thought the war was setting the stage for the coming of the Antichrist, that this was this was the first step as we moved towards Armageddon, that the end of the world was imminent. And so for him, that that absolutely motivated his action. He believed he had to work as hard as he could, as fast as he could to get as many people saved as possible. And so for him, serving in the OSS was a means to an end, which was 
essentially protecting religious freedom so that missionaries could continue their work in China because they had very little time left. Um, for the others, they tended to have a, a longer view of history. They didn't think the world was coming to an end. They believed that God had called them to help establish the kingdom of God on earth, that things were going ultimately going to get better, and that the war was serving as this kind of refining fire to, to purify the world and to root out evil. And so for them, the the goal, the job was to help be part of that product, to be or part of that project, to be part of God's work on earth. And so they were eager to do what they could to um, to try to ensure more godly, more righteous values in their nation, and then ultimately in the rest of the world, with with the hope that that would help facilitate the building of the kingdom of God around the globe. So it's quite a broad question, really, but I was wondering what role these spies ultimately played in securing the Allied victory. Yeah, and of course, World War II was such a an enormous undertaking. You know, they uh, none of them made you know kind of an a, a difference that couldn't have been accounted for by somebody else or some other action or some other event. So what I say in the book is that their impact was disproportional for their numbers, that there were only a small number of missionaries who were doing this work, probably in the dozens, maybe near a hundred. But what they were doing was providing essential intelligence to the OSS, which was then passed on to army intelligence, naval intelligence, and also to Roosevelt directly. And so they helped facilitate planning and they helped build alliances. They were the, the key conduits both to Palestinian leaders, Zionist leaders in Palestine, and also to um, the Saudis as they were working to rally the Muslim world against the Axis powers, and also to the Vatican, that they they had relationships with the Vatican and were reaching out to try to convince the Pope to be more explicit about where his loyalties lied. And so did they win the war for the Allies? No. Um, I don't think there's any any small group of individuals you could say won the war for the Allies. But nevertheless, they played an important role and contributed in ways that that haven't been appreciated or recognized in, in the literature on World War II. Sure. So moving forward to the end of World War II and the foundation of the CIA, I was wondering what role, first of all, the missionaries had in that and also how missionary spies were utilized after World War II. So it varied. Um Two of the folks, John Birch and Stuart Herman, were not involved. At, by the end of the war, um, they were getting less and less involved with the OSS. And Truman shut down the OSS right at the end of the war. And he didn't think that the U.S. needed a global foreign intelligence agency. Um, and of course, he rethought that, which is why we had the CIA, CIA founded in 1947. But, but in that period between 1945 and 1947, while American policymakers are debating whether or not they need an intelligence agency, uh, Stephen Penrose and William Eddy were at the the foundations of these debates and these discussions. And so they went to work for the State Department and for the Department of the Navy, um, respectively. Eddy was in the State Department and Penrose was in the Department of the Navy. And they were both working on intelligence matters. And so as discussions began about launching the CIA, they were both extremely um, involved in laying out the policies, developing the programs. And for them, um, the one of the important things was to make sure that the CIA was independent of the military and that its agents could work independently of any kind of congressional oversight. Essentially, they wanted plausible deniability. They wanted agents to be able to go out around the world to do what they needed to do, even if that meant breaking international law for the, for the good of the United States and then for the United States government to be able to separate itself from them. And so these, these two missionaries 
despite their high ethics, despite their religious feelings, they in some ways helped lay the foundation for what turned into a problem with the CIA, which is its ability to act in sort of a rogue, um, extra legal manner. Uh, but they both they both ended up leaving uh, the CIA shortly after it was founded in 47, 48, mostly over um, issues of Zionism. They were both staunch Arabists, and Truman's recognition of the state of Israel deeply offended them. And so um, Eddie went to work for the Arab American Oil Company, Aramco. He continued to believe he was doing missionary work. He believed this was part of the social gospel, but obviously working for a giant oil company is a, a little bit self-serving, not exactly what we think of as missionary work, even if that's what he claimed. And then Penrose um, became the president of the American University in Beirut. He returned to the Middle East again as a missionary, and he tried to um, really return the school to its Christian foundations and to make sure that missions work was at the core of what the school was trying to do. But for the CIA itself, it's clear that they continued to use missionaries uh, throughout the Cold War, and, and this became more controversial for the missionaries themselves. During World War II, obviously the, the issues were black and white, good and evil were clear. Um, during, this, during the Cold War, it gets much more murky, and so, um, so missionaries had more reservations, but it's clear that some missionaries were working for the CIA. The problem with that is that material is all still classified. The CIA has not released operational materials from the, the Cold War. And so we only get little bits and pieces of what the CIA missionaries were doing. But we, we know enough to know that they were working through for the CIA throughout the 20th century and probably into the 21st. So I have uh, two broader thematic questions um, and also interpretive questions, which is, well, the first one is, what does this story tell us about uh, the history of American religion more broadly? Sure. I think it, it helps us think about ways in which religion matters beyond just personal belief. I think for too long, historians, especially historians of American foreign policy, haven't taken religion seriously, despite the fact that both Americans tend to be very religious people, and many of the people around the world that the U.S. engages with have serious religious convictions and religious ideas. And that was something that the OSS didn't realize right at the start of the war, but that they sort of came to recognize quickly was that if they wanted to deal with the Vatican, if they wanted to deal with Muslims in North Africa or the Middle East, if they wanted to get access to Jewish Zionists' underground networks throughout Eastern Europe, they had to understand the religion that was motivating these folks. They had to understand their beliefs and how to engage with them. And so the missionaries were extraordinarily important conduits for government agencies in helping them reach out to global religious peoples around the world. And that becomes really important for the Cold War as well, well that, that that becomes a, a foundation for Truman's efforts to wage this war against godless, you know, supposedly godless communism. Um, so that's that's one major thing it, it tells us is that religion matters, and it doesn't just matter in, in churches on Sunday mornings, but it matters in foreign policy. The other thing I think it shows us um, is the way in which governments can and do manipulate religion for their own purposes. And, and I'd say that in sort of a neutral way. Some folks in the OSS were, were true believers. They, they didn't see themselves as manipulating religion. They, they really believed in freedom of religion. And so they saw that as essential to what they were trying to protect. In, that, of course, was one of Roosevelt's four freedoms, was freedom of worship. And so, so they were true believers. But there were other folks in the OSS who are more pragmatically minded. They weren't necessarily true believers, but they realized nevertheless that religion mattered and that religion should be important to how they're crafting policy and the, the kinds of things they're trying to accomplish. So my second uh, broader question is, 
How do you envision this work contributing to ongoing debates about the role of missionaries in American imperialism? Yeah, I suspect it'll be, a, hopefully it'll be be an important part of that discussion um, because the they certainly, missionaries were part of American imperialism. They, you know, they were in the 19th century. We know that they were in the 20th century. And I think historians have paid less attention to their role in the 20th century because the missions movement splinters in the 1930s and it becomes um, less influential in terms of the American mainstream in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But what we see here is that American missionaries have nevertheless still been important um, diplomats for American values and American ideals, just not in the way they were in the 19th century. That in the 20th century, we had ambassadors, we have you know, multinational corporations. We have different ways of exporting American influence. But nevertheless, the missionaries are the folks who are blending in the best. They're the folks who know the cultures the best and know the languages the best. And they're the ones who ultimately are trying to seek cultural change. They're the ones going into other cultures trying to transform them. So they're, they're, they have to be an important part of this conversation. Great. Well, thank you so much again for being on the program today, Matt. That was a really fascinating conversation. I just have time for one more question, which is, what are you working on now? So I'm kind of a couple things in the air, but what I'm hoping to do is a big book. Well, what I will do is a big book on American Christianity from colonial times to the present. Uh, essentially trying to answer the question, why are Americans so Christian and why has Christianity been so central to shaping American culture, politics, life and its interactions around the rest of the globe? Mm, okay. So really dealing with uh, some big meaty topics there. Um, Great. Well, thank you again for being on the program. And um, uh, yeah, it was a really fascinating conversation. Thanks, Stephen.